Well, in middle school, my mom decided to take our family on a whitewater rafting kind of camping vacation. It was one of those uh, situations where you go rafting for a day, you pull off, you camp, you hop back in the raft, do another day of rafting, and then they bus you all the way home. So anybody in here ever been on a trip like that by any chance? A couple adventurous people. And so one of the things that, that with that trip is, is, is we got kind of our crew, our, our raft together. And I remember uh, our guide, her name was Katie, and she was just like jacked. Like she just had massive muscles. She clearly like lived on the river. I was like, are you sure your name's not like Bertha or something? because she was just, she was, I mean, she was just yoked. And she's like, all right, crew, there's two rules when you're in my boat. She says, rule number one, don't fall out or else you'll die. And we were kind of like, that seems like an important rule to remember. It's kind of an intense rule. And I was like, but falling out, isn't that just like part of what happens? And then she says, rule number two, if you fall out, we're like, wait, 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 I thought we weren't supposed to fall out. She said, if you fall out, don't try to swim against the current. Just swim off to the side, and then we will come and get you. And so I was in, in middle school at the time, so of course, uh, what I wanted to do is just like kind of goof off and whatnot. And so we'd get to these calm spots where I'd be like, oh no, I fell out. And then they would have to come over and get me and I'd swim back. It was all during the calm times. But then we were coming up on this class four rapid, which I believe class five is the biggest rapid you can get. And she looks at me and she says, Eric, do not fall out during this time because we're going to hit a rapid. It's going to be calm for just a couple minutes and then there's going to be another one. And so she's like, I don't, I don't want to lose you. And I was like, I got you, Katie. I'm in. And so we're going through the first rapid, and we get through it, and all of a sudden, the other junior high boy who was on our raft is out. Like, he's not on it. And we start freaking out. We're like, can you move this man overboard? And she, like, flips on this switch, and she becomes, like, Inspector Gadget. She's like, oars in, everybody. And we're like, okay. And we put our oars in, and they're like, and she gets these two massive oars just out of nowhere. Just like, three strokes. She covers, like, 100 yards. Whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. And I'm at the front of the boat, and I'm about to reach over and grab this kid, and she's like, no, I've got him. I'm like, okay. And then, like, this go-go at Gadget gadget arm just gracefully pulls him into the raft and then like two strokes she pulls us up onto the bank she waves all the other rafts through like yo it's okay oh, we'll catch up and then she goes okay so is everybody good and we we're like what just happened like you just saved this dude's life and then so we get back to the bus and we're like taking selfies with Katie we're like hey remember that time you you remember that time you saved that guy yeah that was awesome and like we were in the boat we didn't do anything but we were kind of there like that was super cool well, as we kick off this teaching series through the book of 1 Corinthians, for the next 20-something weeks, so just prepare yourself, it's going to be a long one. We kind of like our long book studies here. We're dealing with a church and a group of Christians who have been caught just going with the current of their culture and the worldviews around them. And what the 1 Corinthians kind of serves as, it's an opportunity for the Apostle Paul to say, yo, yo, let's get you to shore and let's regroup. And there's kind of a, a couple reasons for that. Some people are, are, have just been rescued from life or from death to life in the name of Jesus that Paul is writing to. And he's like, I want you to know how to navigate this Christian life well. And some people at our church, like that is your story right now. That is your reality that, that a couple weeks ago uh, we had our Easter services and we had over 34 people make a decision to follow Jesus with their life. And that was just incredible. And so for some of our church, that is your current reality is Jesus has just rescued you from death to life, and you need to learn how to navigate life differently. Others of us were kind of in the boat, so to speak. 
And we're on the side of, sh- of the shore, and we need to kind of regroup. We need to reorient maybe our, our thoughts, or our feelings, our emotions, our actions. And then there's others of us, as 1 Corinthians goes along. It's going to kind of, kind of serve as like a warning shot across the bow. Hey, you're going with culture. You're going with the stream of what just feels right, what seems good to you. Are you sure you're up for what that is? Because that path does not lead where you think it leads. And so we're diving into 1 Corinthians today for the next 20-something weeks. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians. It's in your New Testament, the back of the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. There's a 2 Corinthians. If you get there, go back. One of the things that we would love for you to do is you're going to have the, the reference here on the screen um, so that you can follow along with us. So we encourage you to bring your Bible right in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's two ways that we would love to provide one for you. Number one... You can stop by Guest Central on your way out, free gift to you to say thanks uh, for for being here because we want people in our church to be comfortable with this book. We want you to be familiar with what it says and how it teaches us how to live life. Second of all, if you're somebody who needs a maybe particular type of Bible, like for me, I can only see out of one eye, so I need need Bibles with big words in them. And so if that is you, reach out to us. You can fill out a connect card, drop it in the give and respond box. It's another place you can put your tithes and offerings if you want, and we would love to help uh, serve you in that capacity as well. So we're starting here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Follow along with me. It begins as it says, Paul. I want to stop there, but we're going to come back to it. But this is, I'm just telling you, we're going to stop there after that first. Paul, called by an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ and called to be his holy people. If you have your own Bible, circle, underline that word holy, because we're gonna, it's going to be important. Together with all of those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace be to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. So the letter begins, Paul. And that's just the way of saying who is writing the letter. And Paul's going to serve as the, the Obi-Wan Kenobi, so to speak, for the Corinthian church. He's going to serve as the wise sage, the Mr. Miyagi. He's the one who's kicking off this master class of how to live a life worthy of following Jesus. But whenever we see that word Paul, sometimes our mind goes like back to the book of Acts. Where it's like, okay, yeah, I know who Paul was. He was that amazing Christian who planted all those churches and gave his life and almost died several times. And he was like on that island with snakes and he didn't like snakes. And then he had a thorn in his life. We, we, we like to think of Paul as that guy. But this is early on in his ministry, 18 months after being in Corinth, he's writing back to them. And so whenever I see the word or hear the word Paul as he's writing a letter, it, it's good news for this reason. Because of who Paul was prior to becoming who the Paul we know today. You see, Paul would have been famous not for his Christian faith, but because of his life before following Jesus. Paul was the guy who, who was the first to, to murder Christians. He was the guy who was, who was at the stoning of Stephen, leading the charge. Paul was also the guy who, who, who was known for being a Pharisee of all Pharisees. He was probably rich, he was probably wicked smart, and he probably had all of these things going for him that Paul would have been known as like a bad, bad dude. He was kind of rough around the edges. He probably yelled a lot. He probably wasn't the most pastoral or caring. He probably was kind of in people's faces, like, this is what you need to know. And some of you are like, Eric, that sounds like you. I'm like, yeah, it's probably why I like Paul so much. And here's why I love it, though. is because Paul's story reminds me kind of of mine. 
I was not a murderer, I just want to get that out there, but let me explain to you. Because of who Paul was, he's the last person who you would have thought to be writing this to be a wise sage teaching people how to follow Jesus. And when I reflect on my life, that's sometimes the reality that I get hit with, is, is I'm kind of not the last person, but I'm probably not top of the list of people who should be on this stage. Like, I didn't grow up going to church. Like, when our kids' ministry says, well, Eric, you should sing this song, you know, from church camp, blah, blah, blah. I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, when I think of, of, of my life and my story, it's like I wanted nothing to do early on of being a pastor. I wanted nothing to do with preaching. I wanted to make a lot of money because everyone in my family is super rich. They have all these toys. I was like, that's the goal. That's the dream. That's what life is about. And then at an early age, I lost my father. And I had a lot of anger towards God. A lot of anger. God, why didn't you do something? Why didn't you step in? Why, why, why didn't you come to, to his salvation so that I could live a normal life? And I wrestled for so long, so much anger and resentment towards God. And so then I think of Paul and I think of me. It's like, yeah, I'm probably not the person who, as a young age, would be like, oh, that Eric kid, that, he's going to be the one up there doing this thing. And that's good news for me. And hopefully it's good news for you because no matter your past, no matter what you've been through, no matter the context and the culture you find yourself in, God has a plan to do some amazing things if you're willing to honor and submit to him. You know, Paul's going to write later on in chapter 1, we're going to study that next week, but he says that God has the ability to use the foolish things of this world for his glory. The word foolish there is the word moronic. It's the Greek word, like it sounds like moron. So, so that's good news for all of you guys, that God likes to use morons for his glory, right? And I said, that's good news for me, because I can be really, really stupid sometimes. And that's the beauty of God. So when it says Paul, it's not, here's the guy who's got his life all together and everything. Here's the guy who was a murderer who was a zealot, who was trying to tear down the church of Christ and through the power of Jesus is now writing as someone who can direct people back to Jesus. And so he takes out his pen or his quill and he begins to write this letter that's kind of like surgery. 1 Corinthians is going to be like surgery for some of us. You know, surgery hurts. It's painful. There's intentional pain that you are put through for the sake of healing or wholeness. Let me just offer this as a caveat. If you come to church for the reason that you want somebody to pat you on the head and stroke your ego and tell you how good you are and how magnificent you are and that if you just try a little bit harder, you have this massive breakthrough around the corner, this ain't the series for you. Probably ain't the church for you either. But if you're here today and you're saying, the reason I'm in this seat, the reason I'm watching online, the reason I'm following along with this series is because I want to experience this Jesus. I want the life-changing work of what he can do in my life. I want to experience this transformation that Paul had in my own life. Let me say to you, welcome to 1 Corinthians. It's going to be some surgery, but if you hold on and know there's going to be some pain points ahead, it will be worth it. So Paul begins and he says, all right, to the church in Corinth, an ancient Middle Eastern city, uh, the capital city of Achaia. And so a little bit about Corinth. Well, let's just start here. That if you want to know what Corinth was like, the best way to summarize the, the, the city motto of Corinth was this. It was simple. Just you do you, bro. Like that's what they were known for. 
You, you choose whatever truth you want. You go with whatever feels right, whatever you know and believe in your heart. That is what you just go with. And there's a bunch of ways in which that fleshed itself out. Number one is it was a port city that had four major uh, trade routes that descended on Corinth, which means they had an immense amount of money running through it. So much so that they had leftover gold, silver, and bronze that they would mix together to create their own precious metal called Corinthian brass. Like, that's crazy to think. They, they have so much wealth that they don't know what to do with it. They just, I don't know, let's take some gold, some silver, and let's make our own thing. Like, it's just nuts. On top of that, they were known for all of the pagan Roman and Greek gods that had temples in the Corinthian city. Hundreds of them. But the most popular Roman god was the god Aphrodite, the goddess of sex. And some scholars believe that there was nearly a thousand sexual servants that lived in this temple. So then when you wanted Aphrodite to do something for you, you would go to the temple, do whatever you had to do with these sexual slaves in order for that God to appease you. There was a term in the ancient Middle East that was coined to cornthize, which means to live life without any form of moral compass. To live life in your sexuality, your beliefs, your morality with zero guardrails. That's what it was to be a Corinthian. So here's Paul who's writing this letter, and he says, so, so to the church in Corinth, in the culture gone wild, that led to a city gone wild, that led to the Christians gone wild, to the church that has now, now gone wild, let me write to you to teach you how to follow Jesus. And he begins very intentionally in verse 2. He brings up that word holy very early on. Now when we hear the word holy, we typically think of what? It's like someone who walks around all proper, probably drinks tea with their finger up, or someone who's all hoity-toity. The ho- You're just holier than thou. That's kind of what we say. But the word holy actually means somebody who is other, set apart, distinct. There's definitely some moral action, some moral rightness, but, but it really means this term. When we talk about God's holiness, it means he is so different than us. He just is in a completely different, almost reality. And so when Paul says, let me remind you, church, in Corinth and in Champaign, You need to be holy. You need to be different. You need to be set apart. The way you think, the way you act, what you believe, how you view your context, it ought to be different. And the problem was, as Paul discovered, is that the church in Corinth, they didn't want to be holy. What they wanted was just to become a a Christianized version of what they already were. And they wanted to continue to go about their life, continue to have their own way of thinking, and just sprinkle a little Jesus on top and call it good. And that's, I guess, what it means to follow Christ. And Paul's writing and saying, no, 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 you are called to be set apart. Let me teach you and show you what that is. And so for a lot of the church in Corinth, what he's saying to them is, is you got to have a different worldview. you got to change everything about how you process stuff. That's why this series is called True North. Is because we want to take 1 Corinthians, take its truth, and and let it determine for us the the navigating compass of our life. So here's the, if you are your note taker, you can draw these um, circles. 
and they create a uh, Venn diagram. Someone first service was like, yeah, that's what I called it like something. And teachers were yelling out, this guy's stupid, get him off the stage. Okay. Um, anyway, so, so, so here we are, church in Corinth, and Paul's writing, okay, you got to develop a new worldview. I'm left-handed, so I'm going to go over here. And so everybody has a worldview. Whether you know it or not, realize that you have a worldview, and it's a collection of these three things in your life. It's, in one instance, the collection of your context, that's an E, uh, and then it is your beliefs, I-E, yep, F, I think, spelling, and then your actions, Yep. Okay. Some of you, that's going to bother you. There you go. All right. This is what your worldviews, and this is, so all three of these things come together to curate your worldview in life. And your worldview is how you determine what is, what is morally good, what is morally absolute, if you believe that or not. How you view your context. Your context is something that you can't control. You can't control where you were born. You can't control who you were born to. You can't control some of the things that happen around you. That's your context. You have your beliefs. So what do you believe about the world? What do you believe about spirituality? What do you believe about God's? What do you believe about moral rights, wrongs? That's part of it. And then your actions. What are you actually doing? What decisions do you make? And your worldview comes together and says, this defines a lot of stuff. It defines your priorities. It defines your values. It gives definitions for things like love and hope and meaning and identity. And all of that comes together in this point is your worldview. Whether you realize it or not, you have a worldview. And what 1 Corinthians is going to say is we aren't just called to have a worldview. We're called to have a specific worldview. And that is a Christ-centered one. One in which the way we act is drawn because of who Jesus was. The way in which we view our context is because of what Jesus did. Our beliefs are central to the word of God. There is one truth. There is one way. All of those come together to create a Christ-centered worldview. As 1 Corinthians goes along, though, we're going to see different pages and chapters show us how, well, at some point, some of the Corinthians, they were actually going along with culture. And their actions and their decisions were based on indulgences or just what felt right opposed to what is Christ-centered. Some of them are going to go along with their context. The rest of the world is saying, well, you just need to, you, you, you got to be tolerant, you got to be affirming, you can't do anything that's going to hurt anybody's feelings. You just, the, just go along with the rest of the world. Some of them are being pulled away from Jesus because of their context and others still, they're going to get caught in this trap of their beliefs, of watering them down of choosing certain doctrines over others that diminish the power of God that causes disunity in the church. You have a worldview. Your worldview matters. And here at First Christian Church, we want you to have a Christ-centered, gospel-focused worldview. And what I mean by that is it's not just good moral advice or suggestions. It's a pronouncement that there is a new way of living for those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus based on the work of Christ, the truth of God, and who Jesus was and his spirit in us. So Paul then picks up in verse four. Let's put this worldview together, starting here, he says. He says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. Starting in verse five, pay attention to the emphatic nature that Paul references who is at work here. 
He says, for in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all kinds of knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus has given us his spirit and his gifts. He will also keep you firm. This is a word that means strong to the end so that you will be blameless, not weak on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. For God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Remember verse two? You gotta be holy, church. Christians in Corinth, you gotta be set apart. Don't just go with the current of culture, the world around you. Be distinct, be different. But do not forget the reason and the power and the purpose is because of what God has done and wants to do in your life. And the trouble that the Corinthian church we're gonna see found themselves is, is they were in this mindset, well, but are we, we're close enough, right, Paul? Like, like we're like there, but, but not, but like, we're like close enough. You ever have an impossible burger? Like, I don't think you're like, I don't know. I've never had one, but it's like, I don't imagine if I had one, be like, mm, yep. Tastes just like beef. Like there might be hints here and there, but like close enough, like that ain't it. I read an article this week um, talking about uh, sports movies and they were picking on all of the sports movies that got it the most wrong based on real life. And so there was a lot of baseball movies on there. I don't know why. And I'm scrolling through this article and I'm like, okay, this is a great article. And then I get to the, the, the number one movie that they were picking on and I had an emotional crisis. If you are a millennial or you parented a millennial, you're gonna know what I mean. Is they, they said the number one movie that is close, but definitely ain't it, is The Mighty Ducks. And I was like, how dare you random Google searched article taint my childhood. And you know, because they're like, well, you know, they, they, they talked about skating in the right way and they talked about having soft hands with the eggs. But that whole flying V thing, and I was like, don't go there. I live for that thing. I would go out in the driveway with some stuffed animals and be like, let's go flying V, we're gonna do this. They actually interviewed a real hockey player, never seen the movie before, showed him that scene, and this is what he said. He said, anyone who knows anything about hockey knows there's no chance in blank that that would ever work. And I said, to blank with you, mister, because that was my childhood. But close ain't it. Close ain't it. Because when, when we are following after Christ, those, those, those subtleties in which we, 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 we kind of give in, those areas of those beliefs or those thoughts in which we kind of just adhere instead of submit ends up being the things in which draw us further away from Jesus if we're not careful. There's a man by the name of Charles Spurgeon who, who wrote this line on this idea. He said, discernment is, is, isn't the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. And a lot of the people in the Corinthian church, they were caught in that almost right current. And I'd venture to guess that many of us get caught in that same spot too. I'm close enough, Right? I'm kind of there. What's the big deal? And usually what happens 
is close enough, is surrendered over to things like, but this over here feels right. That over there seems okay. Based on all my friends and my peers, this is how it ought to be instead. And that's where we go from being Christ-centered to close, but close ain't close enough. Paul's writing to the Corinthians not because they had a a, a Christ-centered worldview, but because they had a relative Christian worldview. And that is so dangerous because what happens in those moments is we end up taking things that are unhealthy or sinful or cause pain in our lives and we okay them because it feels good. It seems right. I ought to just go with everybody else. That's why Paul is so clear, starting in verse 5. It's about who God is, what he has done, the gifts he has given to you, the power of Jesus in your life. It boils it down. Church in Corinthians, you haven't given your all. You've given parts of your life to Jesus, but not everything. You see, if I were to say, what's the, what's the tension What's kind of the the reoccurring issue in 1 Corinthians? It's going to be this problem over and over again is that they have this this issue of selective submission to a Christ-centered worldview and a Christ-centered way of living. You're going to have people who say, God, you can have my beliefs and I'm going to view my context, but I keep my sexuality. God, you can have my salvation, but I keep my wallet. God, you you can have my relationships, You can have my schedule, but I'm going to hold on to my views of marriage. God, you can can have everything else in my life, but when it comes to church, I just want it to make me feel good, and I want a certain feeling and an experience, and that's where I know it to be true. There's this issue of this selective submission where they're going to hand over pieces of that worldview. God, you can have my context, but I keep my beliefs. God, you can have my beliefs and you can have my context, but I keep my actions. God, you can have my actions, but I'm not going to dare stand on a truth that there's only one. And Paul's going to say, oh boy, you better buckle up. You you better get, get it together because we live in a world, we live in a society that says, man, you just go with whatever. And Paul's going to write to remind the church in Corinth, he says, that's not strength. That's not loving. What that is, is that's just, that's weakness. That's weakness. That's an inability to have courage to stand on one belief, one true God. That's weakness based on those actions, how you think that's okay because you just justify it because it feels right. It's weakness to view your culture and your surroundings and to, to, to pull yourself away from because I don't like what they do and say, so I don't want to go around them. He said that's weakness. But we live in a world where the world applauds what is weak, what is easy, what is simple, what is, what is sensual, what, what feels right. My son is five years old. He's going to be six this summer. And I am deathly afraid of when he gets into his more formative years, what society is going to say, here's how you define masculinity. Because right now, the going trend of how you define if you're a man or not is a question. And the question is, what's your body count? And to those of you who are like, I don't know what that means, Don't Google it. 
It's a word that simply means the phrase, how many people have you slept with? Because the higher that number, the more manly you are. And I look at that and say, that's weak. That is, that is so impulsive. You want to know what takes strength? You want to know what takes the, the ability for God to do that? Is to, to find a woman and commit yourself to a woman for an entire life. So that you may honor her and cherish her and take care of her and raise a family with her. If you want to know what true masculinity and strength is, it's that. What the world says is just flat out weakness. That's what we buy into. I'm not a lady, so I don't know what it is for, for, for the ladies in the room, but, but what I see is something like, well, you want to know, uh, to define how, how strong or good of a woman is, show me your schedule. And the more full that it is, the more pages and pages of stuff you have going on, and the people can come along and say, wow, I don't know how you do it. And that feels real good. Or maybe it's how many Stanley Cups you got, you know, stocked up, I don't know. But you get what I'm saying here is the world applauds what is weak, what is sensual, what is impulsive and say, that's what it is. But the true measure of somebody through the gospel of Jesus is you find strength in him and him alone against a world that has no compass whatsoever. And so that's what this series is going to be about. This is going to be one one thesis, one phrase. It's going to be about this right here. Is that following Jesus means he is our true north. That when we look at the context of our world, I look at it through the lens of who Jesus was and what he would call me to do. When I look at my actions, what I do with my time, my values, my priorities, my wallet, my sexuality, everything that I do is done from a Christ-centered worldview. And when I look at my beliefs, I stand firm that there is one truth found here that tells me about the Son of God who died on the cross for my sins, went to the grave, rose three days later so that I might have everlasting life and he sent his spirit to live in me because I am weak, therefore he makes me strong. First Corinthians is going to say, what is your worldview? Are you, are, 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 is it Christ-centered or are you just going along with the currents of culture? Because that is easy. Or are you doing whatever you can to center yourself on the name of Jesus? We're going to move to a time of communion this morning. So if you have the communion elements, I invite you to get those out here. And I want to set up communion with a brief story and illustration. I want to ask you a question. I'm going to give you an illustration. I'm going to ask you the question again. What, if anything, in your life is pulling you away from Christ-centered living? Now, let me give you an illustration. In the 50s and 60s, there was a basketball player by the name of Wilt Chamberlain. Uh, He's one of the best basketball players of all time. A lot of people say he's the top 10 greatest basketball players. And Wilt Chamberlain was known for one specific feat. And that was in one game, he scored 100 points. Now, I have scored 91 points in NBA 2K once. But he did it in real life in the NBA against professional athletes. Now, yeah, if you go back and you, you notice something, he was averaging like over 50 points a game, this incredible feat. No one's ever going to do it uh, ever again. But his free throw percentage was like abysmal. We're talking, he was like 38% or something, just absolutely horrific. And you can watch videos of it. Like every single time he's shooting the ball, it's changing. It's like, oh, this guy, come on. Like you can dunk from the three-point line, which they didn't have back then, but you can't shoot a free throw. 
And so one day someone comes along and say, hey, Will, have you ever considered shooting free throws like this? And he's like, nah, bro, I don't, I don't play that game. That looks weird. He's like, no, just try it. And he went into the explanation of why, and sure enough, he practices for two weeks, shooting like 90%. So the game in which Wilt Chamberlain scores 100 points, it's because he decided to shoot free throws granny style. He hit like, just like 24 of 26 or 26 for 28, just, just unbelievable turnaround. And so then you think, okay, man, he's going to average like 80 points a game from here on out if he can hit his free throws. He never does it again. Because as he was standing at the free throw line with the ball in between his legs and whoop, his own teammates and other people on the other team were making fun of him. Jeers from the, uh, the stands were coming in and saying, come on, that's not how you shoot the ball. Other people would write stories about him in the newspaper. Sure, he scored 100 points, but man, he looked foolish. And he decided to never do it again. Even though that is what was best. Even though that was going to work because he was going to stand out. Because he was going to be different. Dare I say, because he was going to be holy, set apart from everybody else. So let me ask you again this morning. What might be holding you back or even pushing you away from a life that follows Jesus Christ? In the time of communion, we, we remember Jesus' work for us on the cross. That little cracker represents his body broken for us. The juice represents his blood that was shed on our behalf so that anyone who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. As the timer comes on the screen, we invite you to partake of the elements as you feel led and to reflect. How might God be calling you to be living set apart in your life today?